The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is Galatians 3, 1-9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Lynn. Well, good morning. My name is Stacy Croft, and uh, I am the lead pastor here at uh, Christ Prez of uh, Music Row, and uh, I'd love to get to know you better if I haven't uh, met you already, grab coffee with you, sign that uh, black book too if, if uh, you want to grab coffee too, put your email down, and uh, let's, let's get together. I'd love to hear your story and get to know you better. Uh, and by the way, next Sunday, we had handbells this morning, next sun- Sunday, um, uh, we have actually... A, a beautiful moment in our, in our whole service where each element of the, the uh, morning is going to be led and uh, spoken to through our kids. So uh, whether it's at communion table or call to worship or wherever it is, the offertory, we'll have one of our, one of our kids up here with me actually describing what's going on. Um, it's going to be so beautiful. So you can actually not only learn what they're learning over there, but you can, by faith, know why do we do what we do. And here, our children actually articulate that for us. So hope you can come next week and, and hear that as well. And some of you, I know your kids are going to be involved with that. So excited about that. Well, um, it was uh, in 1973, in August, hot summer, in Stockholm, Sweden, um, that there was a bank that had been taken over by um, robbers. There were many hostages in it. And um, after the end of the standoff, which was about 130 hours, uh, five, six days later, in the doorway of the vault, they found a few of the hostages. But what was unusual wasn't just the whole you know, robbery itself, but it was actually the, at the end of the standoff, the convicts, or those robbers, actually embraced their own captors, uh, the, those he, they had taken over. And it was odd. It was baffling to police that even over that time, they said that as the police seized the gunmen, the hostages even cried out, don't hurt them, they haven't harmed us, and began to embrace them and say, look, we, we look forward to seeing you again. The seemingly irrational attachment to their captors perplexed the public and the police, and even those who investigated whether they had plotted that, that those you know, hostages were a part of this robbery. They thought, what's going on with this? 
The captives were confused, too. They even became known as, and as we term it now, this is where it came from, Stockholm Syndrome. This, that is, that Stockholm Syndrome is where those who've been in a, in, a, in a position of being oppressed by a captor then become attracted and actually captivated by their captor. In other words, psychiatrists compared this behavior to the wartime shell shock exhibited by soldiers and explained that the hostages became so emotionally indebted to their abductors and not the police for being spared from death that it became just enamored with them. You know, as we're, uh, when Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians, peppered through it is this language, and we read it this morning. It actually happened earlier in the letter. He says, foolish Galatians, I'm astonished you're leaving. He's, he says, who has bewitched you? He starts peppering it, and there's just a little bit of that language in there. And what he's saying is that he went and founded this church, in Galatia, a bunch of people who had no idea about the gospel, even Jewishness, this Jewish man, Paul, who goes to preach the gospel to a bunch of, of, of Gentiles, non-Jews, they become Christians, but soon after he leaves them, a group comes after him and says, yeah, Paul, Paul gave you the message, but he didn't really give you all of it. You need to kind of take on some more. You need to become more Jewish. You need to take on more rituals. You need to take on more laws. And then, yes, that'll put you over the hump. That'll get you, get you through the finish line. You can actually be a Christian. But what was interesting is it wasn't just that this, this new idea, and they kind of thought, that's a great idea. They became entranced by it. In fact, the word foolishness, uh, if you look it up in Hebrew or Greek, it has several different forms. But in this particular passage... This is what it means. It means that there's a refusal to recognize the actual situation. When he says, oh, foolish Galatians, he's saying, you're not recognizing. You're not seeing it. You're stuck. You've been stuck behind. You've been cap captivated for so long by these people that you've forgotten the reality of the gospel. You've forgotten. You've been bewitched easily led astray. In fact, one of the words for foolishness is actually to be easily led astray. It's, 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 it's in our context of what's the next thing we can hear? What's the thing that sounds so good to us? It just kind of fits just right with our, our experience as well as what we like to hear and that we just kind of say, gosh, that person really knows it. That book really taught me. This is amazing when so many books come out, certain books and how prophetic they can be and how people can just kind of totally change the way that they think about God based on a single book, rather than saying, how does this compare with what the Bible's telling me about dating or relationships or people or jobs or whatever it may be? In fact, I, I, I love how You've Got Mail actually talked about this in its own way. I don't know if you remember that old movie, rom-com, You've Got Mail with Tom Hanks. And, um, it, it, he was talking about this at the very beginning of the movie. He talked about Starbucks. And he said this, and I love this line because it really tells us what we're like. The whole purpose of places like Starbucks is that for people with no decision-making ability whatsoever, they, they can make like six decisions just to buy one cup of coffee. So people who don't know what they are doing or who they are can only for, at this time, $2.95, that tells you how much it's changed now, can just get, not just get a cup of coffee, but an absolutely defining sense of self. Look, we, we get in this, this place where 
the question is, what really grounds our faith? Last week, we talked, and, and Paul set the stage. Right before this, he says, here's the basic building blocks. Here's what faith is. Here's what it means to be justified, right? Legal declaration of us being justified, innocent in Jesus. Faith is a focus in Jesus, the one who has done that. But now he comes to the, to the real meat of it to say, how do you have a grounding of that? How do you know when you're really growing? How do you know you're not just kind of going away? How do you know when you're being bewitched? How do you know when those things that sound so good to you aren't leading you away from the actual good news that is what we even are celebrating in Christmas? That Jesus came, the good news of the gospel. How do we know we're still saying that? Are we looking for a new experience or something next? I think Paul does this in two beautiful ways, and I love it. A pastor loves this, by the way, when the passage just kind of gives you the outline, kind of says, here it is. And it is. The first five verses here talk about this. What is our experience of faith? And the six through nine talk about what is our chosen faith, Right? What is experience? How does experience connect to our faith? And then secondly, what does it mean to have chosen faith? That we choose our faith versus inherited faith. You know, as we <clears throat> look at this, he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The word bewitched is an interesting word because he's drawing it actually from their culture. He's saying, who cast a spell on you? Uh, In other words, you could translate this, who gave you the evil eye? It's kind of like, who's looking at you and giving you the evil eye that made you go, ooh, maybe I'm wrong? What what forced you to give up what you know is true? What, 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 What caused this? In other words, what caused this strange behavior, right? For you to just say, yeah, Jesus is great, but I really need to do all these things in order for him to be great. Where did that change? Because he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, here's what's fascinating. He's not saying that they were actually there at the event, but what he is saying is publicly portrayed. It's like a billboard. This is the actual Greek language, a placard as big as you can see of Jesus on the cross crucified. You saw it because you heard it. He's saying, trust your experience. Now, look, many of us can do one of two things. We can fall in one ditch or the other, right? As Martin Luther often said about uh, what it meant to be a Christian, it, it meant oftentimes we were like a drunk man on a horse. Sometimes we fall on one side of the horse into a ditch, and sometimes we fall on the other side because we're thinking too much of, well, yeah, I need to do more, or no, I don't need to do anything at all. But what is our faith? Our faith is, is to actually is to have connection to experience, it is connected to what we feel and sense and, and realize, but it isn't driven by it, but it is connected to it. And he's wanting them, them to realize and go back to, what do you remember you experiencing? Don't you remember the experience of seeing Jesus publicly portrayed, the cross of Christ, what it means that we don't just know about Jesus, but we know him. There's a huge difference there. There's a really big difference about, between knowing about Jesus and actually knowing him, experiencing what it's like to be in a relationship with Jesus. You know, I, I've talked to you many, and many of you in this room about this, some of you even this week, great questions about, you know, what, what, are the, what about those moments when you just don't feel like you're close to God? You're not experiencing that relationship close to God. 
But isn't that in, the, in those moments, and this is what Paul's getting at to remind them, that when he says, let me ask you on this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? He's trying to get them past the fact that there's not a formula. It's about a relationship. And even when we feel just no affection, isn't that like in any other relationship? Often I think we think Christianity should be over-connected to experience where we come to a room like this and maybe you're here visiting. Maybe this is your re-emergence back into a church because of this time of year and, and maybe you're just kind of experiencing that. But is it to come and experience something turning over in us in order for us to leave and we just feed off that experience? Or is it actually coming and, and, and engaging with a real God, a real person that doesn't want us to just know about him. He wants us to know him. And so when we do, we actually experience a relationship, that, which means just like any relationship, you're not always super exuberant. If you were, wouldn't you be exhausted or exhausted by a person in that place? The deepest, most profound relationships you and I have are the ones where we are actually us in a million different ways. It's almost like a Mac. If you have an Apple computer, and if you've had one of those, you know what it's like to have all the icons on one side or at the bottom, and you scroll your, your, your uh, cursor over them, and some of them, they expand and some contract, but they're always there, right? Some of them you use more than others. Sometimes you realize, oh man, I, need, I use you know, my Word or Pages or whatever it is more than I use any of these other apps, but they're always there. Your relationship with God is, is, is enormous. It's a relationship. Some of the deepest theologians, J.I. Packer, one of my favorite theologians wrote about this. He, he talked about that there's a huge difference in knowing God and knowing a lot about Him. That we can know a lot about God. And we can come and make it an intellectual exercise. You can, you can know a lot about a, a person without actually knowing them. Interests, hobbies, those kind of things. Without actually knowing what, what is it like for them to be in suffering? What is it like to be and walk with them in pain? This is why Jesus comes the way he does. This is why we celebrate Christmas because the arrival isn't just a nice tune or a, a moment in a season where we sing a song. It's actually regarding a historical moment when this person publicly portrayed came into existence to interact with every icon we had to interact with every part of those in you. That, that is a truth that he, he touches inside of all of us. That Jesus comes in this form. And this is what he's trying to get them back to. He's saying, look, if we, if we merely put trust in our experience, we're, we're, we're only caring about the flower and not the root. You know, like a flower is, is amazing. It's fragrance. It's beauty. But if you cut it off and you can put it in your house and it creates aroma and it can be amazing and, and, and people coming to your home can be delighted by it. It can, it can totally make a, 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 a room or a space or anything like that incredible. But what happens? After some time, what? The water starts turning nappy. I still don't understand why it turns so gross. And then it begins to smell and then they just fall over. And at some point you're like, okay, got to get this out. And you, you got to clean the bowl out. I mean, because why? If it's not attached, it's been cut. Experience is like that. Experience is beautiful. It can, it's delightful. It enriches everything around it. But if it's not rooted in the reality of the gospel of good news of Jesus, then it just becomes experience. 
You know, we think of the Puritans, if you, even when I say that word, Puritans, you may think of people that are like very structured and orderly and disciplined and like that, that's what you're supposed to do. And so I think often in our, even in our uh, world, we kind of live this way where we hope if we do a quiet time when we come to church, we do prayer, that we have this experience that keeps us going. And sometimes we go to it and we don't. The Puritans actually looked at uh, the Puritans who we think are rigid <clears throat> actually called going to these things like church or communion or fellowship together or prayer, they called them God's kisses. This is, this is the way your heart is actually refreshed by God. That they go to God. It's more than just a discipline. It's, it's how you connect to God himself. Here's what's amazing what Paul does here. He doesn't just say, remember your experience, remember Jesus, but he goes directly into, he says, the Spirit. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? In other words, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, this, this may be a lot of categories for you, but stick with me for a moment because this is how profound Christianity is. That God found it so worthwhile that he not only came in the arrival of the advent, he continued to be with us in his personhood of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he didn't just come in that bodily form. He stayed, and he decided to come with us and stay with us in the Holy Spirit. That being that does our relationship, because Jesus isn't just in front of us right now, does our relationship with God change? Do we trust on something else? Does it mean that my relationship with God isn't the same and I trust in some sort of law. I mean, what is the rule of law that you try and use to do that instead of what, are, what the Puritans called God's kisses, where you go to these things to be refreshed and reminded in the affection because you've connected to God there. Look, instead of, look, oftentimes thinking about experiencing God in those moments where we think that the law, we think if we set up an orderly quiet time or we set up, if we make church three to four out of, you know, three out of four Sundays a month, that we're going to experience something. Are we doing that because we're ordering the law in order to connect to relationship or are we coming to them wanting to see Jesus larger? That's what these things are. They're not an end in of themselves. They're actually a magnification of what Jesus and who he is and what he did. Look, look at verse 4, and this will really push the experience portion. Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Look, this is why we know that, that our relationship with God doesn't stand on experience, but we are to experience it. And here's how we know that. When you suffer... When you actually, when the rubber meets the road and you suffer, what happens if your basis for your relationship to God or even anyone around you is solely on experience when you suffer? It could be, God, why are you doing this to me? It could be a hardening. It could be a, a confusion. It can be a, a driving away from. And it's okay to have experiences, Right? But if we solely put our experience on what we're, our faith on our experience when we're suffering, it can drive us crazy. Again, I, I've talked to a few of you, and, and someone, we were talking about really sometimes not feeling close to God. 
If our faith is based on our experience and we don't feel close to God, does that, is that the basis of our experience? Is my faith mean that God is far from me? And when I suffer, what else happens? When I suffer, I oftentimes can go, what do I do differently? What did I do wrong to get punishment? How do I change this formula? How do I import a law that makes me get out from underneath my suffering and actually feel like God loves me again? Is that what suffering's about? That's what experience can do if we don't connect it to the person and relationship of God. We can make our suffering and the experience in it drive us to say, God, this is who you are, rather than saying, God, who are you with me in this? See, isn't that what Christmas is? Christmas is God coming in that form to show us what he thinks of suffering. It's him coming into that place to say, I'm going to take on all of this. I'm going to to take it up and put it in me so you know I understand suffering. And so I understand you. That's the relationship God has with us. Those are his kisses. This is where we meet him and receive that beautiful refreshment in the midst of even suffering is because he gives us the third person, himself in the Trinity to connect to us, to connect to his word. A great theologian said this well when he said, the church is not to drift from one emotional outburst to the next but to resusc- or to resuscitate what's called Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came on a weekly basis. Rather, the church moves immediately to the task of teaching, keeping itself straight, and what it is and what it is about to be. If you watch and you open up any part of the Bible and the Holy Spirit, when, he, when the Holy Spirit comes on people, it's not this exuberance, it's teaching, it's life. It's life in the ordinary. And sometimes for us, that's hard. But that's where God connects. That's where he gets to his people is through connecting in our experience in relationship to him. Don't let your experience cover up the fact that you have a relationship with him. Let it drive you to the relationship with him. Be real with him. Look, you may be here this morning and you may not want to sing at all. You may feel like you're doing the routine Christmas thing. Be that. Don't force yourself to be in a place with God that's beyond, oh God, I don't feel this experience, or try and muster up an experience. Get next to him and let him stir what's in your heart. Give him the real you. Don't pursue things like that's what we do. Isn't that what we do when we pursue some law? That's what Paul is getting at. That what is perfected? Are you so foolish? He says it again. Be led astray in verse 3. Having begun with the Spirit, having begun with the one who is in relationship with us, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Meaning by what you can do? Don't be led astray by the things that may make you feel this or feel that. Stay with the one who's with you, just like you would in any relationship, and even then some, the one who comes regardless of what he sees in you, and he doesn't turn away even if you don't feel that way. And and what Paul does here that's so beautiful is he, he moves from not only what it means to experience faith, but to a chosen faith. Verse six, he says, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He does an incredibly genius thing. Because instead of just camping out on the experience, which could be, he moves from that to 
actually to the heart of what is the problem. That these people coming behind Paul are saying, you need to be more like us. We have this inherited faith from Abraham and we live in him. But Paul's saying, no, no, no. His was a chosen faith. That Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Who is Abraham, briefly, in case you're just unfamiliar with the Bible? Abraham is considered the patriarch of the Jewish faith and even of other faiths in some, some regard. He's the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis where God actually is laying out the fact that he's going to have a people and there's going to be a nation and there's going to be blessing. And if you look all in Genesis starting in even the early chapters, chapter 12 and onward, you see that his it starts with him and then his children's children. And from that point, and you jump fast forward to the New Testament where Jesus is on the scene, he's always having this discussion with these Jewish leaders who are saying, we are children of Abraham. We are children of Abraham. They keep using this as part of their argument. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You may think that you're children of Abraham. Just because you were born of Jewish descent or just because you were connected to the same uh, you know, descent as Abraham doesn't mean you have the same faith as Abraham. And Paul picks that same message up. And here's what he's getting at. He's getting at the fact that there's a huge difference between what Abraham did when it says he believed God and was counted counted as righteousness and believing in God. There's a huge difference between Believing God so much that you're willing to stake your whole life on who he is and believing in God, that he exists, that he's there. The difference between an inherited faith and a chosen faith. Like I've mentioned this once before and I find it fascinating. One of the biggest pushes in our culture, particularly in this time of year, is the idea of is religion inherited or chosen? And there's nothing like Christmas that can really draw that out. Nothing like Christmas that can really... Uh, point to the fact that we have a chosen faith or an inherited faith. An inherited faith is one being that, did you just grow up in this? I mean, maybe this is one of those things where you're like, hey, we're doing the thing. It is that December, uh, you know, there's a sentimentality, something that grows in it. And that's great. You may have something you grew up in. But at some point, the question becomes, do you really believe God or do you believe in a God? Do you really believe in a God that, that maybe majority of people in Nashville, Tennessee probably have that feeling? And there are a lot of people who may, whether they go to church or not go to church, may believe that there is some sort of God, higher power, someone who they believe in. But believing God means that you give him all. He is the object of your faith. He is the one that you look to say, you are God himself. I mean, that's what Christmas means. Christmas means that very thing. It means that we look to a God who actually came in in flesh. And he took up these things that we were actually, you know, that he didn't just grow up in it. He chose it. He came in it. And this really asks the question of how deep is, how do you grow? I mean, maybe some of you for years you found yourself going, yeah, this is just the thing we do. Church is a thing. I needed to find a good church. I need to find a good church home. I want to push on that for a moment and say, look, all of us struggle with who God is, but the question I'm asking is deeper. It's more of, 
Is your faith one chosen because you know this God came and arrived for you? Or is it something that you have put a part of your repertoire as, maybe I'm a Christian, I grew up in this thing. One of the greatest minds I've heard speak, actually at Vanderbilt, John Lennox, he's a scientist and everything else. And he, he was asked on stage when, with 1,500 people listening to him in his great Irish accent that he has. Oxford professor asked, when people talk to you about your faith and they say, you just grew up in this stuff. Like this is, you just always have been a Christian because you just grew up that way, right? I mean, Maybe many of you are in this room are that way. I mean, I did. I grew up that way. I remember when I was a little kid praying, uh, and I used to pray for gold. I don't know why I prayed for gold. Uh, I would literally say, God, uh, would you have gold on my night table when I wake up? And I don't have, like, the only gold thing I have is my ring. Uh, I love gold. You know, like, I don't don't have anything in my life like that. But I realize, like, as I look at that part of my life and I look at my heart, and I think that that is so a part of me, even as a kid, that I didn't know who I was praying to. The greatest gift that God actually sent and he could bring to me isn't gold. It isn't, and this is what Abraham believes God, and it's counted to him. There's actually an account that's deposited in for him that it's not about those things that he wants, it's the, what he needs. That what, what have I been praying for? What, what do my prayers consist of? Do they consist of that me praying for what I want? Or do I begin by knowing the one who's actually arrived and entered into it so that it directs the way I pray? That I look at the one who has come in that way, that account. It says this word here, a couple times, and it could be confusing. It says that our, our faith, in verse 7, know then that those of faith who are sons of Abraham, it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. It is of faith that we are sons of Abraham. He's saying to the Gentile Christians, you are actually sons. You're brought in. You're considered a part of the family. This precious one who arrived doesn't come for you second fiddle. You aren't in the back. You don't get him next. You get him now. He is yours. It's credited to you. When I was taking Hebrew and all pastors, you know, we quote, hey, this is the Hebrew for Greek of, you know, those kind of things. And a lot of times we say that because it makes us sound smart and those kind of deals. But we have to take that to graduate. And I actually took... Greek and Hebrew uh, at a seminary in Dallas, and uh, I ended up really loving it. And the reason I loved Hebrew and Greek, and I've, I did well in it, I find that I do well, and just maybe like you, do well in things that I really care about, but uh, is I had a professor that on the first day, or first week rather, when we finished the week, we knew we had a quiz coming. And this short man, he was uh, an incredible, genius, African-American, wonderful man who had Elliot Green. Who had, he knew nine languages. It's kind of insane. Where he would stand at the board and he would begin writing. And he would start writing in another language, like 
German? And we'd be like, whoa, whoa, no, we are not. And he's like, oh, sorry. And I'm like, come on. You know, who, who does that? You know, yeah, we're not smart. Um, but he began the entire class this way and set the tone by giving us a quiz and saying, you have one word you need to know. Write the Hebrew word for grace. What's the Hebrew word for grace? He gave us about five, ten minutes. He was like, look, just one word. shouldn't take you long. And we're all kind of like, I don't know what that is. You can't cheat in seminary. What do you do? You know, like, um, he says, stop. Everybody put your paper down. Who got it? Nobody got it. Uh, None of us. We're like, I have no idea. He writes it on the board and says, write this on your paper. We write it on our paper, the word hesed, word for grace, kindness, mercy. And then he says, write at the top of all of your papers, 100. There's your first quiz. This is Hebrew. And like, we are sort of crying, <laughs> crying in Hebrew. I mean, but what did he do? He credited, he said, your account is nothing. You're, you have all failed. <laughs> he gave us about a 20-minute sermon, and that was my, my first picture of Hebrew class on grace. The fact that all of us have nothing. We have, none of us have failed. I mean, have, uh, have succeeded. We've all failed. And yet what it really means with believe God, and it counted to him as righteous, is that God actually gave us everything that Jesus took on. Like, the, the point of Christmas is this. The point of Christmas is that he comes in flesh to encounter every single way that you and I have failed. All the ways that we can't count righteousness. We can't count approved. That word righteous means approved. And there's no way, no, no part of you or, or me that has count that. This table is actually a moment for you to experience something. This is what's beautiful about Christianity. Christianity does this. It sets a table for your senses to be drawn in. Like even before I came, I was, I was standing in the other room walking through our service with everybody and all I could smell was the smell of the wine behind me. But it's not enough to smell it. You have to actually, what, encounter it. You have to take it in. You have to experience the body and blood of Jesus. And you're not actually taking the real body and blood of Jesus, but what is happening? It's not just a memory either. It's not that like you're trying to like figure out what... Ooh, how do I remember Jesus? You know what's happening up here is that the Holy Spirit himself is taking these common things that you experience and applying them to your heart. It's mind-blowing. What is it? it? It's simply this. That sounds like huge theology. It's actually not. It's that his relationship doesn't stop with you, even when you may stop with him. It means you just come to this table and you experience the fact that he never stopped giving to you, that he found coming as a baby, one of the most traumatic psychological experiences, if any of you in this room understand as a psychologist, is being born, he found it worthwhile, being born, living throughout his life, experiencing every experience you do, and yet keeping and staying connected to his father for you, so it would be counted to you, and that you come and taste that reality. 
so that you can leave here knowing that Christmas isn't just some sentimental thing. It's actually happened. It actually doesn't matter how sentimental you get with it. It happened this way. So it could engage you in your affections so that when you leave this table and you rub shoulders with everybody lined up here and you go back to your seat and you sing and you leave these doors, that your affections for him to live for him are stirred by you encountering him. You don't have to muster up anything. Nothing. Just come. Taste and see that he is good. Let's stand together.